Welcome to Show Me the Proof, Get to the Point, the B2B marketing podcast where we show you the proof in the form of case studies and success stories, and we get straight to the point so you can learn something valuable and get on with your day. Each week, we'll feature a top B2B marketing leader and discuss their revenue-generating strategies. You'll get actionable tips and learn how to accelerate growth through seriously smart marketing. Now it's time to have a look at the proof and get to the point with your hosts and founders of ProofPoint Marketing, Mike and Gabby Grinberg. Welcome to Show Me the Proof, Get to the Point. We are so excited today to have John Ruji with us as our guest. John is the VP of Marketing Strategy at BombBomb, where he leads efforts to design the human-centered communication category, and he also heads up the content and design teams. John, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabby. Mike? Wonderful. Well, the show is called Show Me the Proof, Get to the Point, and we like to say that the proof is in the pudding. So we're excited to dig in and talk to you today about specifically category design. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to over there at BombBomb. Yeah, well, it might make sense just to give you a little primer on category design and that'll give uh, give you some more context for what we're doing at BombBomb. And we'll, we can go into more detail throughout the conversation, of course. But category design for someone who's never heard of it is the process of breaking out of a, a market that has kind of a highly competitive nature and building a new space that you can claim all for yourself. So at BombBomb, we have actually been around since 2006. So in a startup space that makes us a little on the older side, but when we started life back at that time, our market was really focused on real estate agents, mortgage brokers, kind of that you know, individual account, you know, one or two seats. And as we kind of grew out that space, we, and, and by the way, we, we do video email and video messaging software. We, we started to realize that there was a bigger opportunity beyond just allowing people to send videos over email and social media and other contexts. And we realized that we were solving a much more fundamental problem than that simple mechanic that I described. And there were some other competitors who started to enter the space. And we really thought about what we were after as a company, what our aspirations were. Did we want to be in a situation where we competed for having the best product in that kind of narrow definition? Or did we want to go after something that was uh, that was different, that solved something in a new way and something more fundamental? And ultimately, we landed on the ladder and we've been going down this category design path that's uh, really helped us focus our vision, not only for marketing, but just our, our company strategy as a whole. So our, our product, the way we talk with customers, the way we do business. So that's what I've been working on for the past uh, year or so since I joined. Very nice. Yeah, I remember actually recently listening to an interview with uh, the founder of BombBomb, Bomb, Connor, and sort of hearing the story about how how the how the company came to be in the first place way back in the day and targeting real estate agents. I mean, you guys were really, really early in the space in terms of the technology is kind of uh, unheard of back then in terms of that you could even do this. So it's it's interesting to see where it, where it's come since then. Yeah, that's right. We uh, we, we never get we we'll get ever get criticized for starting too late. We uh, we definitely were on the early side there, which did give us an advantage because we have more experience with this uh, way of communicating than than others. So we have a we like to think we have a more um, in depth understanding of why people use video asynchronously, what's the real issue they're trying to solve. You know, it's not a gimmick. It's not a trick. Sometimes people who are kind of new to that space or some of the startups that come into the space treat it like a silver bullet or, you know, a, a trick to drive more sales, but it's uh, it's something deeper than that. And that's 
that's what, really what we've tried to, to play into. So let's kind of set the stage here for our listeners. Thank you for sharing about what category design is, because I know that for some people it may be a new term or something they're not familiar with. How did this come about internally at BombBomb? Was it something that you brought up to management? Or how did BombBomb and yourself kind of say, yep, this is something we should do? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll talk about what happened with us specifically, but I'll add a little bit of flavor for just how this tends to come up in other situations as well. Category design, it's, it's a business strategy. It's not a marketing strategy or a sales strategy or a brand strategy. It's a, it's a business strategy. And this was an area that I had started to explore and learn about a few years ago. And so I started doing some consulting on this back in 2019. And BombBomb on its own was kind of at this inflection point where they were really deciding what the future of the company looked like. And I knew a, a couple of guys on the team, Ethan Butte, our chief evangelist, and, uh, and Steve a little bit. And they decided that they needed to really invest in, in making this transition away from, again, those real estate mortgage individual buyers, more to, to mid-market enterprise, and again, more away from that kind of commoditized space and, and into a different category. And so they decided that they wanted to bring someone in to help uh, kind of lead and guide this transition. And so I got a call from them one day back in 2019, and I was just really excited to be able to do that kind of work in a more formal context with, uh, with an organization whose values and purpose I, I really aligned with. So that is a, a kind of a unique situation. I'm not sure how often that would come up in other contexts. But from others I've, I've spoken with and, and you know, learned from who have done category design, it, this is the kind of work that really has to start with the CEO and be led by the CEO. Because again, it's, it's a business strategy. So sometimes that means that as a marketer, maybe you're thinking about this or reading about this first, and it's your job to have a conversation with your CEO and your leadership team about what this means. Sometimes it might mean the CEO is the, the one finding out about it and, and he or she is taking that down to, to their team. But it's not the kind of process that you can do as a department or as an individual. It's kind of an all-team effort. So one of the things that I've had to invest a lot of time in and others who have done this work have had to invest a lot of time in is just spending time with the team on what this means, why we're doing it, you know, what are the outcomes we're trying to get to, um, just to make sure it's, it's pursued for the right reasons and with the right expectations. Tell us a little bit, like, what does that look like? You're talking about spending time with the team and making sure they understand why you're, why you're doing it and... Uh, and sort of what the you know desired outcome is. What does that actually look like? Is it uh, is there like a strategy for the number of meetings that, need, that that are had, or who are the like who are the right people to get involved? How does it trickle down? Kind of any and all of those things. So for us, it was having a conversation, not about category design. I would not recommend going into any sort of discussion with an agenda of hey, here's why I think we need to pursue category design. It sets up a kind of a, not necessarily adversarial, but you don't want to be in a position where you're trying to convince someone that category is the right move to, to make. What you want to do instead, at least this, this is what worked well for me, is to think about what you want to achieve as a business and what your, your strengths are as a business. And then ask yourself what kind of strategy makes sense to then achieve those goals. So for some companies, competing in an existing category might be the best course of action at that time. You know, maybe they're already the leader in that space and they don't need to break out of that category to get the attention and the, the revenue they need. Or maybe the company really addresses that niche within that category uh, very, very well. 
and that's that's their strength and that's going to allow them to enjoy the you know create the strongest business possible and so other situations you know businesses find themselves in are you know, maybe they've created a product and they know themselves that it's it's different than other categories out there but they run into situations where people want to lump them into another category and just really play in their favor or they're constantly struggling to kind of convince people of, of why they're different or what they're doing. And they don't have a framework for, for describing those things. And if that's the case, then, then category design might be uh, a path to explore, or they might find that they're, they're in a space, but they just don't have a way to kind of out feature or out price other competitors in that area. And they want to carve out a space for their own. And so they want to be strategic about thinking what the product looks like, what the audience looks like, what problem they're really solving looks like, and, and kind of chart that path more intentionally from the, from the get-go. But that, that all comes back to, to having those conversations with your team, not about should we do this strategy or that strategy, but what do we want to achieve as a business? What are the constraints keeping us from, from getting there today? And then based on that, let's look at the different strategies available to us and find the path that, that makes the most sense. It sounds like it's really more leading a horse to water to a certain extent of kind of getting people to realize and discuss what the potential right answer is rather than just forcing it down at you know, everybody's throats of, hey, we're going to do this thing and kind of creating that, like you said, adversarial environment. Yeah, I think that's just, that's not specific to category of design. That's just good change management. So I have a question and I've been struggling with how to really word this. So maybe you can, as I'm talking, you can kind of help me with it, John. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And what I mean by that is, you know, there are some categories out there of products and tools that are instantly recognized by the people that whom they serve. But then there are categories that are maybe not instantly recognized. Maybe people don't know that they have this problem or that this is a thing. So how do you, you know, as a company think about, should we do category design? Is that what we need to do? Do we need to create a new category? Is there a category out there that fits us? Are we creating more problems by creating a new category that our target audience may not even know that they, that they fit into this, this pain point or that they have this pain point. So I guess what I'm asking you is, you know, is category design something that can maybe cause more challenges as as a company? Is it how how do you get your intended audience to understand that this is something that they really need, or that that, that this is that this is the pain point that we're actually solving? So there's a couple of parts there. Yeah, you mentioned the the problems that can be or challenges that can come through just going through the category design process, and then you asked about how you address this with your audience and convincing them of why or why not they they need to pursue this or look into this this category so i'll kind of take those in sequence to to address the pro the problems and the challenges it you know category isn't something that you design you want to take uh, lightly so one of the things that we talked about with our team and i i tried to be really explicit about is that this is really it's hard work and it's a it's something that doesn't really end. You don't get to stop designing a category or you really shouldn't. It's something that you're going to work on at least in, in terms of years, not months. So it's not like a marketing campaign or something like that. And when it's done right, it has ramifications for all areas of your company. So 
a category designer is thinking about solving a, a new problem that hasn't been solved before or addressing a, a, an existing problem in an entirely new way. And that, of course, it has to affect things like marketing and sales, but that affects the product roadmap and the technology roadmap. Uh, it might affect things like the partnerships that you bring in to really you know, bring that solution to life. And so if you're a company who's looking at category design as kind of something you can just apply from the outside as like a marketing campaign or a branding initiative, it's, it's not, it's not going to have the effect that it needs. And if you're doing it the right way, where you're thinking deeply about what does our roadmap look like? What are our partnerships? What do our sales motions look like? How does our audience change given the, the problem we want to address? That's, that's a lot of work. And, it's, and so unless you have a real issue with a real challenge with where you are today, I wouldn't go down that, that path lightly. Yeah, it's just something that takes work from most of your teams and will be done over a long period of time. Before I move on to the audience piece, does that address what you were looking for around the, the challenges? Yeah, I think it does. And I'd love to, you know, after we get through this part here, I'd love to, I have a few follow-up questions specifically about kind of how you roll this out internally, you know, how this actually comes about. You know, you mentioned earlier on the conversation, it really starts at the top. It starts with leadership. So we'll we'll get to that that after that. But But yeah, please do continue with what you're saying specifically about how do you solve that need or, or, create that need or that awareness for your your intended target audience. So here I can talk a little bit more specifically about what we did at, at BombBomb to uncover this. So when we went down this path, we knew kind of intrinsically that we were doing something more meaningful and, and deeper than just a video email kind of point tool. But we didn't really know how to describe that at first. And we went down a few paths that we thought were the right approach, but when we thought about them a little longer, they were really not the right idea. So for example, when we first started off, we, we started thinking about the, 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 what is the core problem we're really going after? And since we're, since so much of our product revolves around video, at first we thought, well, of course the problem has to be with text, right? I mean, video is like the opposite of text. And when we tried to, to, to stand that up, it didn't really hold water all that well. There's, there's some real issues with that. You know, text works really well in a lot of situations. It's entirely appropriate for much of our communication. And people wouldn't ever tell you that they have a problem with text. That's not really the fundamental issue. They might not be a good writer. They might not be a good communicator, but that doesn't mean there's a problem with text. And so we weren't really, we found that we weren't really addressing a fundamental enough of a problem. And so to to get to that answer, we didn't want to just be inwardly focused. We we spent time with our customers, but also businesses that we felt like were ideal fits for us, just to understand what are the what are the problems that you're dealing with right now in communication and building relationships, and what's really keeping you from making that happen. And of course, no one came back and said, "I hate I hate text." They they came back with more fundamental things. And what it all boiled down to was the fact that in our digital environment today, all of us receive so, so many um, unwanted digital distractions in our inboxes, in our social media feeds, on our phones, that they've kind of turned us into to skeptics about what we're, what we're receiving. And they're draining us of the energy and the focus we need to really invest on, you know, time into thinking about, you know, who's worth responding to, who's, you know, who do I need to just send to the archive or mark as spam? 
and they deprive us of the energy we need to really unpack a message and really think about what someone's trying to communicate. So we call that situation digital pollution mm -hmm. and found that our, you know, our, our customers are primarily sales teams and other customer facing roles. And if you're in one of those situations, your job depends so much on building and fostering healthy relationships with your customers. But when you're in this situation where the people you're trying to get in touch with and the people you're trying to communicate well with and develop a rapport with, when their digital environments are just clogged with digital pollution, the odds are kind of stacked against you. And so you don't need something that's not text. You need um, a way to break through that digital communication and communicate in a way that's uh, more effective and, and more respectful of the needs of your recipient. So we call that approach human-centered communication. And it's this idea that if you're placing the needs of your recipient on at least equal footing of, of, what, uh, of your own needs, then you're dramatically improving the odds that you're going to communicate the right way, that you're going to be seen and heard, and that you'll avoid being misunderstood or ignored or forgotten in the inbox. And so that that language, frankly, that's something that's language we're still working on and still trying to evolve. And it took me a few minutes to get through it today. I hope I can get it <laughs> down to, you know, 60 seconds or 30 seconds in the future. But what I the point I want to make is that, you know, that wasn't like some creative exercise we went off and did, you know, with the door locked. We spent time talking to customers and we spent time thinking about what's happening in society right now and um, how are how is the workplace changing. And we use that kind of a first principles approach to kind of arrive at, at those definitions. And we found that when we take those ideas back and we reflect them to our customers, and even people who, frankly, we would never sell to, we tend to get people nodding their heads and saying, yes, this is a problem. I didn't really, they didn't always have the language to talk about it or understand the kind of the scope or nature of it. But we're getting, we're getting agreement on the problem. And if you can get agreement on the problem, that sets you up really well to, to talk about the solution. Thank you, John, for sharing that. And I, I love the language that you guys are coming up with and have fostered around this, around human-centered uh, communication and design. And now, you know, here's a question for you. And, and maybe it's a devil's advocate approach. A lot of people would say that he, he, the human-centered communication doesn't start with technology. It starts with human. It starts with being human. It starts with, number one, thinking about the person whom you're reaching out to. What is it that motivates them? What are their needs? What are their concerns? Why should they listen to you? Kind of cutting through that digital pollution, which is also something that I love that terminology because, man, I got a lot of pollution in my inbox, let me tell you, John. <laughs> but Kind of talk me through this, you know, for those listening and, and anyone that's out there today knows about BombBomb. And if, and if they don't, then they're probably somewhere living under a rock, you know, but, but you're very active on LinkedIn. So many of your colleagues and the leadership team at BombBomb is active on LinkedIn. You guys are very vocal about what it is that you're doing, what you're talking about, kind of sharing your knowledge about this. But what if someone were to tell you, like, like, like I just said, hey, John, human-centered communication doesn't start with technology. How would you respond to that? And what is the right, what is the right lens with which people need to think about that? I would say you're absolutely right. You can be human-centered and not come anywhere close to a tool like BombBomb or one of our competitors or any sort of video. Now, what we like to say, though, is you're going to run into some constraints about how effective you can be 
without different types of technology to enable you to communicate more effectively, especially when you can't get face-to-face today. You know, some of the things that you need to communicate effectively to build and foster these relationships are things like emotion and personality. You want to convey empathy and trust in how you communicate. And most of us, myself included, are not good enough communicators in text alone to really make that happen. There's some exceptional writers out there who can who can do that. And if they can make sure those, those messages are read, then they could probably get there. For most of us, though, we need something that is more natural, that's more designed with how our brains are programmed to communicate and listen and understand each other. And just for the same reason, we're using video now to share this podcast because it's a richer experience. That's a experience that is missing from digital communication today, especially with COVID and more of us working remotely. Those face-to-face interactions don't get to happen as often. And uh, if we can provide a way to enable that for people and make it easy and natural, then you know I think that's a win. I'd love to dig in a little bit more. I mean, obviously, like you said, it's it's a biz- there's a business strategy that which leads to a messaging strategy. I'd love to talk maybe a little bit more granular on how for you guys specifically. How did it, how has it trickled down into what you're doing from a marketing perspective? Maybe if we can illustrate it in like what changed from before to after, like maybe the types of things you're doing. It's a great question, and it's. It's good timing because we're in the midst of making a lot of these changes right now, Mike. So, you know, last year we had a lot of the foundational work in place. We had our problem defined. We had this language around human-centered communication, and we knew what this meant at a, at a foundational level. And, and this year we've really started to think about how to apply this in a more tactical sense. So I'll just pick maybe two, two things to go into. One is our, is our content strategy. And... Prior to this exercise, our content efforts were very tactically focused. They were, we did a lot of SEO type of work, top of the funnel type of content that was informative. It was a lot of like, you know, how-to content around communicating over video or just communicating in the sales context. And there's still a need for that, that content, but we also have a lens. We have a point of view. We have an opinion that we can share about the world around how we think digital communication should take place. That is, is taking the form of um, thought leadership content. It's taking the form of more tactical content on how you actually be human-centered as a company. So just one specific example, right now we're doing an experiment with our marketing team where when, when leads come in for opportunities that are on this, the smaller end of things, our marketing team is actually sending personal videos to these, to these leads. We don't know how it's going to affect the conversion rate. We don't know what the ROI is going to be, but we have this hunch that treating even someone who's just going to pay for a you know thirty to forty dollar a month account, treating them in a in a one to one way where they get attention and you know focus that they wouldn't get otherwise, we feel like that's a human centered thing to at least try. Again, we don't know how it's going to work out, but it's an experiment we're running, and and we're going to be able to turn that into content about one approach to human-centered communication that this company, it happens to be ours, is, is exploring. So that's on, on a very kind of you know, small scale. At the same time, we're also working on some really big projects that are designed to bring uh, human-centered communication and digital pollution to, to life. So if you've read about category design, you'll, you'll know these are called lightning strikes and they're kind of like marketing campaigns on steroids. So we, we've been working on a book called Human-Centered Communication where we have 11 other experts, you know, fields of business to, to kind of help us 
bring this to life and show what it means in, in practice. That's going to come out in October on Fast Company Press. And then we're working on a film series right now. It's a four-part, five-part series that explores the very concepts we've talked about. You know, how what is the state of communication today? Why is it so hard for a salesperson to um, just get in touch or even after they've built that relationship, why do they get ghosted so often? And what's the what's the experience for the person on the other end, the executive who's being sold to? Why, you know, what's keeping them from disconnecting with other people? And what does this digital pollution do to our brains? And what's the real ramification of this problem? And what's the way forward? So we've hired a film production company to help produce this for us. And we're in the middle of, of bringing in some uh, participants to, to to kind of document in this film series. So it's a it's a big campaign for us and uh, we're gonna, it's gonna affect a lot of our marketing motions and even some of our sales motions uh, later in the year. That is fascinating. And actually, I, I'm glad that, that Mike, that you asked the question and that John, you were able to kind of share a peek behind the curtains of at BombBomb and kind of some of the marketing initiatives that you're doing, because clearly the, these two things that you've mentioned, you know, the fact that you guys are writing a book and also undertaking a film series, a, a, a documentary almost. First of all, those are things that are, I would say for most companies, those are very large undertakings. They're also potentially very costly. It requires a lot of lot of resources, a lot of individuals, not just, you know, not it's not just a single contributor, right? There's there's teams, there's multiple people, you have subject matter experts, and you're also hiring external resources. So just by sharing this with us, you have really helped us and hopefully our listeners to illuminate and pull back the curtains of what it really means to sort of lean into this idea of category design. And you mentioned that earlier that this is not just you know, a few months, a few weeks of a campaign, it's really a long-term play. It's really education and creating those lightning strike moments, that lightning strike content and information that's really going to penetrate the clutter and get at the heart of your, to the heart of your consumers and the heart of of those that that need what you're what you're offering. And I would probably say that most of us today in business need more of that human-centered communication. So thank you for sharing that with us. You mentioned, yes, it can be very costly. Obviously, I'm just, you know, the book, the film series, these are big initiatives. They're also initiatives that traditionally are hard to measure in terms of impact, right? Which I know a, a lot of SaaS companies, a lot of, comp- you know, similar companies to you guys really struggle getting these types of things, forget across the finish line, but even started because, the question always always comes up from the CFO, from the CEO, how many leads are we going to get from this, right? Or something like that. So I'm curious, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The fact that it seems like this was led from the executive team down in terms of this idea of category design and all the trickle down from that, was it easier to propose and get these types of activities approved because the there was almost like an expectation that this is what would be needed? Our CFO, he said one of my favorite quotes that a CFO could ever say one time. He, he, we were talking about budget planning and he said, we need to make sure we have more money for lightning strikes. And when he said that, it just felt so good because we had, we have a great CFO, by the way, I'm not trying to dismiss that role, but if there's a role that's ever going to push back on spending more on, you know, campaigns like this, it's probably going to be the CFO. And so, you know, all the work we've done as a team to think about this and, just be certain that it was the right path for the, for the company. 
did make that discussion really easy. And that budget we're using for that, it didn't come out of our existing marketing budget. It was an additional set that we got to, to move that forward. So what was the yeah. pitch for, Hey, we want to produce a film series. Like how easy was that to get across to the, you know, to the CFO and get approval for it? What I'm assuming is, you know, hundreds of thousands to, to get a film series done, if not more than that. So we did something a little unconventional to get to this idea. And it, it kind of addressed two problems at once. So one is the problem of what is the lightning strike and what's going to make the biggest impact. The other piece is how do you get your company, not just the leadership team, but the whole company on board, not just on board, but excited uh, about what you're doing and have a desire to, to be involved. And so to address those two things together, we did a, a lightning strike contest, a pitch contest for our entire company. We opened it up to all 150 or so employees. And the way we structured it was we told, we kind of presented this idea to the team that we're going to do, you know, allow you all to form teams and come up with pitches for lightning strikes. And we had, we had prizes for our team. We had like a $10,000 purse. So, you know, people could win up to like a thousand dollars personally if their idea won. And we allowed them to, you know, captains to kind of raise their hand. And then we did the kind of a draft for everyone to everyone who wanted to be involved got to be picked on a team. And so you got these teams forming that never had come together before with people from like accounting and product and, and uh, customer success. And they had three weeks to, to put together uh, a pitch. And then we did an all company event one Friday where we got to hear all the pitches. Everyone got to vote on, on the ideas on different criteria. And we got some amazing ideas um, out of that with that much thought being put into the ideas, we were really intentional early on about setting the expectations and, and you know why, why we would do a lightning strike and what we wanted to achieve. Because we did so much work on thinking through the ideas and did it kind of together as a company, when you invest in something at that level, you can't really turn it down after the fact because all, now it's something that you are just doing as part of your culture. We're probably gonna do another lightning strike contest next year. And so, that doesn't mean we didn't have a discussion on yeah how much does it make sense to spend what, you know what is this impact going to look like those discussions were there but that wasn't how we led the thing it wasn't a purely mathematical calculation you know in marketing there's things you can measure and and you should measure those things but there's also things that you know are the right thing to do and you know they're going to have an impact and there's some risk involved that impact's not guaranteed but sometimes it's those things the things that don't show up so easily on a spreadsheet, those are the things that really get you to stand out and, and move things forward because they're the kinds of things that other companies are willing to do. I, I really appreciate what you're saying about this, John, about the fact that you know there are things that you do because they help the bottom line and because that's what you're supposed to do in marketing and you know drive pipeline, drive leads. But there are also things that you do because it's the right thing to do. And I think that that all really ties back to this idea of leaning into category design, leaning into creating something that wasn't there before. And so one question for you, as you guys have really been, you know, and, and I know that it's still, is it safe, is it fair to say that this is still sort of early stages in, in sort of the development of the category and kind of pushing it out? Or where do you consider you guys to be in sort of this life cycle of the, of the category? Yeah, I, we're still in the early chapter. So we are at a point where I'm on podcasts and Others in the company are in podcasts and we're, and we're talking about it. We're not at the point where we've 
had the chance to change the messaging on our website and in our other assets to really reflect this. We have it in a messaging framework doc internally to tell us how to speak to it and give us some guidance, but we're just at the beginning of making those investments. We're working on the lightning strikes. We're working on the content. So we're, yeah, we're in that early stage, but we haven't thrown the big boulders in the water to make the big splash yet. So this question might be premature, but I'm wondering, because I know that you have prior experience in, in category design, and this is not your first rodeo. I'm wondering if any thought has been given or, or ideas have been discussed around the eventual situation that may come about where others want to enter this new category that you are creating. And what does that look like when, you know, when you have a leader of a category that has established their stronghold, their foothold, they've created the category, you know, sort of they are the the Kleenex of all Kleenex brands, to use that analogy. What happens when others come into the space? And what does that look like? Yeah, ultimately, that's a good thing when you have others enter the space because it validates what you're doing. And, and especially as you move up into to larger deal sizes and working with larger companies, you want to get to an ideal situation where those businesses have the thing that you offer as a line item on their budget. And when a new category emerges, that's never the case. But when that shifts and people understand that, yeah, this is just something you need to have if you're going to do X, Y, Z well, then you're not having to do all the evangelizing to them. They're starting to search for those solutions. And if you're the company who's done the best job of understanding the problem and has done the best job of demonstrating that in your product and your messaging and your branding, then you're going to enjoy the, the lion's share of those deals. So the com competitor entrants aren't really a threat. They're just really a way to shift that dynamic of us having to evangelize to that new situation where companies understand that, that this is something they need and are searching for. And that really doesn't happen if there's just one company kind of advocating for that space. You need other companies to start talking about these ideas, whether the competitors or not. If you start talking about these ideas, then it validates that space and it and it puts it on the radar uh, of other businesses who you know want to keep up and, and stay ahead of competitors. We usually like to keep things very, I guess we could say tactical, but there's a philosophical question I'd love to ask you, which is at what point does category design as an overall strategy, you think, become self-defeating? Like at what point does the market become so fragmented with new categories that it stops having the impact that it currently does? I know we're far away from that now, but I'm just curious on your thoughts yeah. on that. That's one I can only answer in theory and, and speculate on. So there's just two things I'll say to that. One is sometimes people conflate category design with these official like quote unquote official categories that you'll see G2 or Forrester talk about, or even on like a G2 crowd or a review site like that. Sometimes those that does occur where that category gets formally reflected in a place like that, but that's not always the case. So category design thinking is more about separating yourself from competitors and talking about why you're different. And if all the other things that, that I just described happen, like it becoming a line item on a budget, those are bonuses. So good things, but that doesn't mean that if you haven't gotten there yet, category design isn't, isn't working for you. The other thing is the world changes so much and the pace of change is continuing to evolve. You know, new problems are coming up every day, new types of technologies are coming up all the time. And so 
I guess that pie of, of types of solutions and types of problems that need addressing, it's always growing and always changing. So new categories come up, old categories go away. Categories get also get redefined. You take a category like electric cars, that category, people think Tesla like invented electric cars, but, or some people do anyway, but they've been around for a hundred years, but Tesla designed, they redesigned that category to mean something else. They took it away from a electric car being something that someone who's overly or highly environmentally conscious would want to drive to something that offers kind of a conspicuous environmental consumption, something that's really fun. So they redefine what an electric car means. So that's not a case of a credit category being created, but it's a case of a category designer coming in and reshaping what that category means. Awesome. Yeah. We can, we can only speculate on, uh, on all this, but it's a, it's an interesting, interesting thought. I think Gabby, is it time, time to get to the, to the point? I think it's time to, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's time to get to the point. So like we said in the beginning, show me the proof is really where we talk about a success story. Now, we do recognize that, you know, that the category design as a success story is one that is a long-term play. It's not something that you're going to see immediate results from. So we would love to, at another point in time, have you back in on the show when when it's actually in market, when, when you have more of your marketing engine in place and things have really started to solidify so we can actually get to more of that proof and, and understand what that impact has been to the business to the category and the industry and and obviously the bottom line at BombBomb. But we'd like to also talk about getting to the point. So in this section of the show, we ask you questions specifically about how somebody out there could replicate this success. Or in this case, how would somebody go about thinking of, you know, designing a category or to your earlier point, reinventing a category. So first question, John, when you kind of alluded to this earlier in the show is really talking about it being a business decision, not a marketing decision, not a sales decision. So for those listening out there that are that are thinking about this or, or they find themselves gravitating toward category design for their product or service, you know, you mentioned starting at the top. So how would somebody go about doing that? What is what is the first thing that somebody in this position should think about or should should begin to formulate as they go down this path? Well, a couple of things come to mind. First is, what is your own relationship like with your CEO or the, the person leading your organization? You know, maybe that's someone that you already report to the CEO or maybe you already have that relationship. And, and if that's the case, great. Just you know, start by having some conversations. You know, do you feel like our business is on the trajectory that it, that it needs to be on? Do you feel like we have a, a good handle on some of the obstacles to success? And and just having that exploratory conversation. If you're not there yet, though, uh, that's okay. But you do need to work on developing that relationship first, because what you're talking about is it's a pretty fundamental thing, and it's not a discussion that you would want to take lightly or your CEO would want to take lightly and they'd want to invest some time in. And so first take the time to, to, to build that trust um, and build that relationship. One thing you can do to, to plant some seeds though, is one of the first books that I read about category design is called play bigger it came out in 2016. And it's, it kind of lays the groundwork for how to think about this at a really high level way. So it's, it's not like a, a very, a tactical kind of how to book. Uh, it's a great book on, on, a strategic framework for thinking about category design. So one thing you could do very easily is say, Hey, I, I read this book. 
It's about this approach called category design. If you have a chance to, to read it, here's some things I think you might like and find interesting. I'd love to hear your feedback on it. And that's just a very easy way to open up that conversation with uh, some pretty low stakes involved. I mean, wor worst case, you expose your CEO or other members of your team to a new way of thinking. And that's that's always a win, whether you decide to go down that path or not. And you answered a question that I was going to ask you is what resources or, or you know, names that people should look into for this. So thank you for sharing that. Do you have any other resources or any other sort of role models in the category design space that you think would be helpful for those that may be interested in exploring this should should be looking into? Yeah, yeah. A few people who are you know, mentors of, of mine or people who helped me think through this or, or doing similar work. First that comes to mind is Christopher Lockhead. He's one of the co-authors of Play Bigger, and he's continued to, to do that work with other companies since writing the book. So he's got a couple of podcasts, Follow Your Different and Lockhead and Marketing. He's got a great newsletter, Category Design Pirates, uh, that I highly recommend looking into. And uh, his website's lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com if you want to look into that. Some other category design companies, it's, it's always helpful to look at other examples, right? In in the wild of, of who's doing what. So Gong is a great example. I you know, got to know a few folks there and they're really thoughtful about what they're doing and, and their approach there. And then I guess I'm going to have to be a little bit self-promotional. That's totally, that's very okay on this show. <laughs> so I wrote a, a guide last year and I published it in conjunction with G2 and we called it the newcomer's guide to, to category design. And it's a five-part series that kind of walks you through how to think about it. You know, if you've never been exposed to this before, to how to have conversations with your own leadership team around this process, and then walking you through some of the things you can do to actually explore your your problem, your point of view, and then go go a step further into actually executing. So it's more tactical, more applied. I would definitely read Play Bigger. I would definitely read this guy because they complement each other. Christopher Lockett even wrote the forward for it. So that was a, it's a nice bonus. And then on my own, you can find that guide. If you Google Newcomer's Guide to Category Design, it'll show up either on G2 or my own website, which is flagandfrontier.com. And at flagandfrontier.com, I've got a newsletter for category design. So you can check that out as well. Wonderful. I was going to ask you to tell us about the URL and you did. So thank you for that. Lastly, I want to ask, I mean, we talked, you kind of alluded to some of this and you shared with us something really exciting that, you know, these lightning strike contests that you're doing to get the whole company involved, to get, you know, stakeholders and really advocates and ambassadors throughout, every, you know, all, all the levels of the organization, which I think is phenomenal. I'm wondering if you can maybe share with us a little bit more about other either internal tools or strategies that you've used as long along with your leadership team in terms of really evangelizing the message internally and kind of creating those those stakeholders creating those champions and if you have any tips on winning over the CFO I mean in your case you had a very forward thinking CFO that must have been an amazing day when he said Hey, we need more money for lightning strikes. That's that's not a that's not a phrase you hear very often. So, any tips or, like I said, tools, resources, internal uh, guidance on how to really have the whole company embrace this movement, this idea of category design? Yeah, that's a great question because, and it's absolutely the right way to think about it, Gabby. Because if your if your team isn't on board, if it's just something that 
your leaders care about or one department cares about, but it's not really ingrained in the way your company thinks, then it's going to fall short of its potential. I can share three or four things we did at BombBomb that I think would probably work well um, in other situations. Something we did early on, you know, we had, you want to think about this as kind of like a drumbeat. You want to give people time to think about what this means, think about how they can contribute, how it might affect them. Early on, we did a couple kind of all hands discussions to talk about why we were going down this path. What did it, what does it mean for us? Uh, give people a chance to ask questions. So we did a, a couple sessions like that, with just the whole team, very open conversations, really focusing on the opportunity and, and what's to be gained and how it's going to improve our odds of, of success. Another just very tactical thing we did, we, we said, hey, anyone who wants to read Play Bigger, put your name on a Google sheet and we'll buy you a copy. So we bought almost 150 copies of Play Bigger and gave everyone the chance to, to read that. We also have a, a category design task force that now we meet once a month. We used to meet every couple of weeks, but it's got you know leaders from product, design, engineering, sales, CS, just a very cross uh, departmental kind of group to help shape our thinking. That was the group that helped define digital pollution and human-centered communication and has really been kind of leading those efforts across departments. So it's not just one department overly influencing what's happening. It's it's something we're working on together. We, we also do Friday updates to our team that come from our president, and we've been using those to have discussions around human-centered communication and, and digital pollution. W one of the challenges we found early on was we really liked the ideas behind human-centered communication. And like I mentioned earlier, when we sat down and talked about it, we started to take longer than we'd like or Phrasing wasn't as elegant, and we maybe there were some points that we needed to add to kind of round out that message. And so we we had all of our departments have discussions with their own teams about those two concepts, and we asked them like, "What's the most difficult thing to describe? Like, what's what's most confusing to people when you bring up these concepts? What do you think's missing? Do you think that we're off in these in, in these ideas?" And we were able to get lots of feedback on how to improve that messaging. And just give people a chance to practice that messaging in a kind of a low stakes situation. So there's, there's some other things we do, we're, we're doing, but those are you know three or four ideas to, to start with. Awesome. I think those are, those are great tips and things that people can definitely implement. You know, I think some of the key elements that you've discussed on the show today that I want to underscore for our listeners is the fact that this, this is really a business decision. It really needs to kind of be embraced by leadership but also it needs to come all the way down in every level of the organization, every department, every, every stakeholder kind of needs to embrace it as well because it is a long-term play, as you've said, John. It is something that requires a cross-functional effort, not just, you know, it's not just marketing, it's not just sales, it's not just the leadership team, it's really everybody in the organization. And it's really refreshing and exciting to hear some of the things that you've shared with us about, about how you guys are embracing this at BombBomb. So we, we know it's still early days, but we wish you guys so much luck and success with what you're doing. And as I said, we'd love to have you back on at some point where we can actually talk a little bit more about some of those amazing results and some of the transformation that you've seen based on what you guys are currently building today. Well, it's the time of the show called the lightning round. So let's jump in. About six or seven questions for you. Well, fairly rapid fire. Feel free to give longer answers if you want. I have a couple of bonus ones that we try to ask 
specifically to each of our guests to kind of, you know, get at, get at them more personally. So Mike will, Mike will kick us off. All right. So what is the main KPI used to evaluate marketing success? Revenue. What's a new marketing tactic or strategy that you're looking forward to testing out this year? I'm going to cheat and use the answer I gave you earlier on that, <laughs> what we're calling human-centered sales, where we're getting our marketing team to reach out and almost act like a SDR with uh, some of our potential customers. Awesome. I'm actually really curious to see and, and hear how that, how that turns out. What's a tool or platform you use in your work that you couldn't live without? Mm. I've started using Miro recently, which is uh, kind of like a virtual whiteboard. And it's just, it's just amazing for mapping out ideas and getting people to collaborate, especially since we're all working in different locations. So that's been a, a huge asset. Yeah, we actually, we've, we've thought about leveraging that internally as well. So we're seeing a demo and whatnot, but we haven't, haven't implemented it just yet. What is your least favorite business word or phrase? <laughs> least favorite business word or phrase? Probably personalization, because it used to be kind of cool that you could do the form fill thing, and now people can smell it from a mile away, and it, it's just <laughs> doesn't work. It, it's like a lot of things, right? It loses its meaning once everybody's doing it. Mm -hmm. What is or what are some of your favorite podcasts? Favorite podcasts. Uh, a couple I mentioned earlier, Lockout and Marketing, all your different are really strong. Our chief evangelist has a great podcast. It's called the Customer Experience Podcast. And it's just he just asks amazing questions and has really thoughtful conversations with his guests. So I know that's a little bit of a plug because it's our podcast, but I do actually listen to it. So I get value from that one. I try not to overly index on marketing podcasts because it starts to be an echo chamber. And one of the best things we can do as a marketer is try to think for ourselves. So I try to listen to content that is just more business oriented, like Wall Street Journal has some good podcasts. It's just going to help you understand what's happening in the world, what's happening with society and culture. So I've been trying to invest more in that kind of content. Yep. I'm, I'm on board with you. There's only maybe one or two marketing related podcasts I personally listen to, and the rest is really more just other things I happen to be interested in or psychology mm -hmm. and you know things like that. Along the same lines, do you have a favorite business or marketing book? Favorite business or marketing book? One I've read, well, a couple come to mind, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing is, you can't not read that one. And it's so short, you, you, know, you can knock it out in an afternoon. That's what first exposed me to category um, thinking, actually. And one that I've been reading a few more times, it's not really a marketing book, but it never split the difference by Christopher Voss. It's just been a great kind of handbook for learning how to, to talk with people and empathize with people. All right, here's some bonus questions for you, John. What is the worst pronunciation of your last name that you've heard? Well, one of my friends used to do this on purpose, but he used to call me Rugi, which <laughs> I didn't care for and he knew it, so I wrote that one. <laughs> now, I'm I, doing a little bit of sleuthing on you. I see that you are interested in Lapsang Sushang tea, and it's a very interesting Thing because I don't think many people know about it unless they're tea drinkers. Mike and I happen to be tea enthusiasts. We we have a special kettle that boils our water at varying degrees. We have a cupboard full of amazing um, 
loose leaf tea. And after the show, we'll we'll tell you where we get our teas and we can talk tea talk. But how did you get introduced to Lapsang Sushang and what's your, you know, what's your interest in it? Tim Ferriss, I used to listen to his podcast and read, read more of his stuff. And he, he mentioned that he was drinking it and, and he, like he talked about how it's like very smoky and almost like it's kind of a harsh kind of tea, but it's like the scotch of teas, like it's definitely an acquired taste. So yeah, I gave it a shot and I kind of liked it. So that's been a go-to. All right. Last but not least, you said that you have two middle names, one of which you still have trouble pronouncing. Can you share with us what those are? Yeah. So my normal name is John Baptiste Rougy, which is like very much in line with my ancestry. Like my great, great, great grandfather had that same name, all these things. But my mom added another middle name from her side of the family, which is comes from Ukraine. It's uh, Sherba. Funny story is I wasn't con- really sure whether it was an, a real middle name or just like a middle name in spirit. And I, and my wife, I tried to tell my wife that I had two middle names and she didn't believe me. And then when I moved to Colorado, I had to get a new driver's license and they wouldn't let me renew it unless I brought my birth certificate, which I hadn't seen since I don't remember when. And sure enough, they were both on there. So even now on my driver's license, they, they had to put both of them on there. So so you have three names that are potentially really hard for people to pronounce, right? At least the first one is easy. So I got that <laughs> Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really enjoyed getting to talk to you, learning more about category design, which is something that, that not many marketers have the opportunity to be involved in. So at least vicariously, we got to learn and experience just a sliver of what you're doing at BombBomb and what you guys are in the process of building. You mentioned your your website. I'll just kind of repeat it for everyone listening today. It's flagandfrontier.com. We'll share that in the notes. Where can people get in contact with you today? You have pretty good odds on LinkedIn, but I get a lot of spam like probably you guys do. The least clogged inbox that I have is john at flagandfrontier.com. My work email is john.rugi at bombmom, but I get you know a lot of unsolicited pitches and things. But john at flagandfrontier.com is most likely to see it there. So if you want to try that channel, that'll work. And for everyone listening, make sure that you're sending John a video message, not just a text message, right? No, no judgment if you're not there yet. It's not everyone likes being on camera at first. Wonderful, John. Well, we we are excited to continue the conversation with you at a later point. And we're excited to also follow along on LinkedIn and uh, and see your success at BombBomb. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Mike. It's been fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Show Me the Proof Get to the Point podcast. Join us weekly for new episodes and seriously smart B2B marketing success stories. We'll show you the proof and get to the point every time. Find additional resources on the ProofPoint website, www.proofpoint.marketing, including the full episode library with show notes, guides, templates, and more great resources. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.